We're glad that you're with us this morning. This is a cool morning as we worship together and celebrate together. Um, Think about baptism and then um, really see the gospel acted out. That's what baptism is. It's this physical display of what has happened. Um, But I want to spend some time um, digging into God's word and understanding that a bit more first. Um, It has been for us uh, so far a year of weddings. Um, My sister who's here today and, and my two cousins all finally decided to get married. Uh, And wouldn't you know it, they all decided to do it within the span of just a couple of months of one another. And so we've been running back and forth, involved in officiating or emceeing or flower girl or ring bearer and maid of honor and all these things. Uh, And it's been great. Uh, But one of the things about going to a wedding, particularly going to a wedding with your spouse, it's it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? You have this opportunity to kind of relive your own wedding. To, to reflect on your special day, to, to kind of quietly renew those vows that you made. You're involved as you watch. And, and this morning, by God's grace, as we celebrate these baptisms, it ought to have that same kind of quality to it. As we engage as the congregation and partake together, watching as we hear these individuals share their story of how God worked in them and changed them, we get to remember God's work of grace in us and, and how that came about. And, and as we see them making this statement through baptism, declaring what Christ has done in their lives, we have the opportunity to participate in a sense. As we reflect on what Christ has done in our, our own lives, as we remember and kind of reaffirm that statement that we made, um, some of us maybe many years ago, some maybe fairly recently, But we can only do that to the extent that we actually understand what baptism is all about. What lies behind baptism. Um, In a sense, there's nothing happening here today in a a spiritual reality sense. Baptism doesn't change anything. Um, It's a portrayal of what's already happened. It's a depiction of something that has already taken place. And the richer our understanding of what has happened, or the richer understanding of of salvation and the transformation that it symbolizes, the richer our experience and our worship will be as we celebrate these baptisms together. So let me just say that the reality that lies behind baptism is so, so much richer than it's so often portrayed to be today. So we want to dig into that. What is the meaning of baptism? What lies behind baptism? The fact that we've come from death to life. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible on you, our ushers are coming forward, and they would love to put a Bible into your hand. So just go ahead and slip up your hand. And if you don't have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible that you can read easily, take this one home. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. Um, We love seeing Bibles walking out of this place. So um, you're you're more likely to get a thumbs up than a a dirty look. Um, Steal our Bibles. We're okay with that. Um, But Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. And yet it's interesting as we dig in here, the book of Romans uh, is, is probably the most tightly knit theological book in the whole New Testament. And and so anywhere that you pick up, you're coming into the middle of a flow of thought. Um, Paul just kind of moves along from one to the next. And so you'll see that as we jump in, um, but we'll kind of fill in the blanks in a minute. So Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see verse 1 opens, uh, what shall we say then? He's obviously in the middle of this flow of thought. Verse 1 assumes that you've been tracking with him all the way along through this letter. And what is he assuming? Well, he's assuming the very foundation that lies behind baptism. He's assuming the gospel of grace. So as we open this passage, the first thing it calls us to consider as we think about baptism is to remember the gospel of grace. Remember the gospel of grace. A gospel, a good news. News of grace and forgiveness so amazing, so extravagantly generous that it might even cause some people to say, should we even go sinning more then so that grace may continue to abound? What an insane question. That's mind-blowing. How rich is this grace? Well, let's, let's push that question. Now, let's just kind of breeze through the first few chapters of Romans. Let me try to bring you up to speed, um, admittedly glossing over all kinds of wonderful truths, but trying to catch the high points. Chapter one shows that God has revealed himself in the beauty and design of this world around us. He has made himself known so that, so that we're without excuse, so that no one can say, I didn't believe there was a God. I didn't see God. Look around. He's right there. He is shown himself through creation, and yet we willfully decide to bury that. We subdue that truth by our righteousness, by our wickedness. We, we refuse to honor him and worship him as the creator, as he deserves. Chapter 2 tells us then how God will judge everyone who fails to live up to his perfect standard who fails to, to do exactly what is right according to him as the creator and designer of this world, to those who rebel against the, the structure that he's created, and how each of us, by our own conscience, sometimes accusing us and sometimes making excuses for us, we show that we understand, we know in our own hearts that, that we don't live up to the righteousness that we know exists. We don't even live up to, the own, to our own standards in our own heart, never mind God's standards. And then how even religious people who talk the talk and, and lay out this great standard religiously actually can't even themselves live up to the very things that they say. Chapter 3 then brings us to rock bottom. Paints a very bleak picture of, of where we stand. Listen to verses 10 to 12 as it is written, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the state of our world. Rebels against God. Every single one of us. It's bleak. It's hopeless. Every one of us is going to stand before God as judge. And it says every mouth will be stopped. Richard Dawkins loves to say that if he dies and 
stands before God in judgment. He's going to accuse God of not showing himself and point his finger at God. He will not. He will stand condemned and humbled and in terrified awe of the glory of God, as will we all, because we lack righteousness. We don't have it. We need it to stand before God, and we do not have it. And verse 21, praise the Lord, turns this amazing corner. But now, a righteousness is revealed. A righteousness that comes not from doing things, not from living the perfect life and trying harder, but a righteousness that's given as a gift. It's a whole new ballgame. There's a, a different way to get to righteousness. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. What a hope. What an amazing, amazing thing. There's another way. A way for us who have rebelled against God, who have become guilty, who have become unrighteous, who deserve hell for eternity to be made not guilty. Chapter 4 unpacks how this gift of righteousness then is to be received by faith. It's a gift given freely to undeserving people, not because they work for it, not because they earn it, not because they have some credentials before God, but he gives it to those who simply trust in him, those who will let go of any hope they had of, of having a, a plea before God and just trust him. There's a legal problem here, right? Um, even God himself says it is a horrible, wicked thing to call the guilty not guilty. That is an offense against justice. And so chapter 5 then unpacks how God could make this happen. This gift of righteousness comes through Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The law demanded death. The law demanded a penalty that would have taken us an eternity of hell to pay. And yes, it comes as a, a free gift to us, this righteousness, because Jesus bought it at full price, paid the penalty of his own death on the cross. The wrath of God that we deserved was poured out onto him. Chapter 5 ends with verse 21, looking at the richness of what God has purchased in Jesus on the cross, so spectacular, so generous. Even the most wicked of person could be forgiven because the more sin abounds, the more grace abounds, all the more. This gospel, this good news of grace, this amazing story for sinners, rebels against God, reconciled to him, brought back, forgiven, washed, cleansed, covered, made sons of God. This totally free gift. As we approach these baptisms this morning, remember the gospel of grace. That's our only hope. That's our joy. Remember this gift that was given so full, so generous and free. Let's be reminded again that someone might read this and actually logically ask the question, so should we keep sinning so that grace gets even bigger and God can show more of his glory in forgiving even more sin? 
It's that free. It's that rich. You're not off base to ask the question. Paul assumes it's coming. Remember the gospel of grace. Maybe this morning you just need to stop right there. Maybe you've never really known that gospel of grace. Maybe you still stand guilty before God as a rebel against him. That is a terrifying place to be. You're in danger of his judgment, his wrath. Maybe you're one of those who's looked out into creation, this world around us, and said, nah, cosmic coincidence, big bang, billions of years, whatever. Just, it just happened. I don't know. I refuse to believe there's a God. Maybe you're one of those who's felt that pricking of the conscience accusing you or rising up to say, oh, it wasn't that bad. I'm good enough. If I stand before God, I think my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. That's not the standard. Standard is God's perfect righteousness. Or maybe you're even one of those religious persons who knows all the right answers, who has this nice, shiny, clean exterior of righteousness. You go to church every Sunday and people are in awe of your immaculate, perceived righteousness. But you don't live up to the standard that you talk about. You know you don't. None of us do. There's one answer. There's one hope. There's one way to gaining righteousness. And it's not by doing better. Oh, the first thing we think is, I got to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I got to work a little hard. I got to clean myself up a little, and then God and I will talk. As soon as I get out of this mess, no. You're trying to dig yourself out of a hole. It doesn't work. In fact, the Bible says that in your pride, trying to fix your own mess by yourself, you're actually increasing your offense against God. You need to give up. The only way is to humble yourself, to admit your absolute hopeless, desperate situation and have that perfect righteousness given to you as a gift. It's hard. It takes humility. It takes admitting that I don't have it, that as much as Disney says otherwise, I can't just believe in myself. That's not enough. Myself isn't cutting it. I need help. It's the gospel of grace that Jesus calls us just to trust in him and receive this amazing gift. Remember the gospel of grace. And then reflect on your death in Christ. Let me pick up again at verse 1 and, and read down. We'll stop halfway through verse 4. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So the answer to the question, should we keep on sinning so that grace will abound and expand even more, is an absolute emphatic no. By no means. That's as strong of words as he has available to him. Absolutely not. And the reason for that 
brings him to something specific about baptism. Something that, that baptism specifically points. So you need to understand he's speaking a little bit in layers. As he says, in baptism, he's talking about what lies behind baptism. The thing that baptism pictures and points us to. But in baptism, we see that, that we have a death in Christ. See, the, the idea of coming to faith in Jesus trusting in this gospel of grace, that moment of letting go and saying, I'm done digging in this hole. I need help. That's not just a decision you make. We, we talk about it that way. We talk about it a little bit lightly, but, but there's so much more going on there. It's not just a change of mind. It's not just a, the kind of change that you make when you change maybe from one career to another. Oh, I, I used to be an atheist. Now I've decided that I'm, I'm going to be a Christian now. Um, maybe that happened, but there's something much, much deeper that happened beneath the surface. It's more than even the kind of change that happens from a, a near-death experience or what we might call a, a, a spiritual awakening. No, there's so much more. In fact, that giving up is something that you can't even accomplish on your own. Because our hearts are hard. Remember, there's no one who seeks God. We need God to do something in us. John 3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Think about the radical change that he's talking about. This is, this is not a, a trite little metaphor. We throw this around, born again so lightly, but he's saying you were, you were physically born at one point. You went from non-existence to existence. Now you need to be spiritually born again. You need spiritual life that you don't have. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Radical change. A new heart from, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. I can't do my own heart surgery. It doesn't work that way. A statue doesn't say, I think I want to turn into flesh now. We need God to act. Colossians 2.13, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespass and sins, and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him. From unborn to born, from heart of stone to flesh and blood, from spiritual death to spiritual life, that's the transformation that we're talking about. It's radical. It's amazing. It's not just a change of direction. It's a, it's a transformation from the inside out. It's not just a, a new coat of paint. It's an absolute gut the house, rebuild from the inside out. And it begins with our death in Christ. Galatians 2.19, Paul says, For I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It's as if that old sinful me the me that, that turned his back on God and lived for, for sin and for, for self is, is dead. How did he die? He was, he was crucified with Jesus. That's how he died. We were baptized into Jesus' death. 
We had some connection, some participation in the death of Jesus. I learned something cool studying this this week. There's a, there's a nuance in the language that's used that I never saw before, and, and us nerds get excited about these things. So the handful of nerds, you're with me. The rest of you guys, I'm sorry. Sit it out. It won't take too long. Um, the word baptize, it's just a Greek word, right? It's not an English word. It's just a Greek word we've kind of shoehorned into our English language. Um, baptizo is the, is the Greek word, and it just means to submerge, to immerse. And so anytime you see that word baptize in your Bible, you can just think it just means immerse. Um, on, the, on the other hand, there are times when it says submerge, and, and you need to think, oh, baptize. Um, but there's actually two forms of this word that Paul could have used. Um, there's the word bapto, which is kind of shorter, more convenient. It was, seemed to be a little more common, and it also means to, to dip. So what's the difference? Why does Paul use bapto and, or baptizo and not bapto? And, and, and I'm kind of digging into this and trying to figure out why he went this way. And, and the clearest example um, is actually outside of the Bible. It's from a guy named Nicander, uh, who was a poet and a, and a physician. And of all things, it's a pickle recipe that makes this the most clear. Uh, how beautiful is that? Um, the cucumber is to be dipped, bapto, into boiling water. I've never made pickles, um, but by the sound of it, it's just a, in and out. It's just dipped. But then it's to be submerged, baptizo, into the vinegar solution. It's more significant. It's submerged, it's soaked, and it's saturated in a way that totally transforms it. And as you kind of chase this out and ask, well, is that how it's consistently used? Yeah. It's used of ships that are sunk to the bottom of the sea. They're immersed in the ocean, and they become this ship that's been baptized by the sea and changed by it. It's used of cloth that's dipped in dye to change its color. It's submerged, it's permeated. Josephus used it metaphorically when a riot broke out in Jerusalem. He says the crowds baptizoed the city and transformed it. They, they ransacked it. This is our relationship to the death of Jesus. We've been united with him, submerged into the death of Jesus in a way that, that saturated who we are, that transforms us into something new. We're permeated by it. That's what baptism symbolizes. As the person goes down into the water, this is why we're picky about the way we do it. We don't sprinkle or, or, or uh, pour because we want to show this going down, this immersion. It's the old self going into the grave, being buried with Christ, dead with him. And so the answer to Paul's question, should we continue on in sin, is how could we? We died to sin. I've been transformed in the death of Christ. How could I still live in sin if I've died to it? It's not a matter of, is the grace of God big enough to cover it? It's a matter of, if you've been transformed by the death of Christ, why would you do that? And we need to be precise here. In what way are we dead to sin? Some have used this passage to say that a, a true believer and Usually they would stand a little taller and get their chest out. A true believer is completely dead to sin. He feels no pull, no draw. Sin calls his name and he's dead to it. He doesn't even hear it. True believers don't sin anymore. Well, that makes me nervous. My experience doesn't say that. And the Bible doesn't either. 
The Bible is very clear. We continue to wrestle and battle against sin. John 1.8 comes right out and says, If anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. So there goes that theory. We're not dead to sin in that way. And, and those of you who are here visiting, watching your friend get baptized, maybe you're not a believer and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure they still sin. I, I watched Shane hit his finger with the, with the wrench the other day or, or Eric missed that. Go, I heard we mumbled under his breath. I've never heard anything out of you. I'm just picking on you. Um, but, but I guarantee you they still sin. I do. I still need that savior. And yet we're dead to sin. So in what way are we dead to sin? How does this apply? I think there are three ways that are significant that we can just walk through quickly here. First, uh, we've died to the guilt of sin. Think of it this way. If, if someone is on trial for murder, facing the death penalty, and he dies midway through the trial, what can the law do? What does he have left to pay? He's, he's already given that which was going to be asked of him. We're dead to the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, uh, because the law has, has lost its jurisdiction over us. Jesus paid our fine in full. It's absolutely covered. Now, in this miraculous twist of events, it's justice that demands we go free because it's paid. Secondly, we've also died to the power of sin. Not just the guilt of sin, but to the power of sin. It's a little closer to the argument at hand. Um, chapter 6, down in verse 17, says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are now committed. We were slaves to sin. Sin ruled you. You were under its power. Maybe you still are today under its power. And you say, no, I'm not. I do anything I want. That's true. But you're a slave to what you want. You can't change what you want. It's your heart that's the problem. You're a slave to sin. And so we can choose all kinds of different ways to sin. But we have no power to choose not to sin. So we're dead to the guilt of sin, to the power of sin. And then finally, most specific to the context here, we're dead to the life of sin. It used to be who we were. That used to be the life that I lived. That was normal for me. That was the path I was walking down. You did, as verse 1 says, continue in sin. That's the question there. Can we just continue on ongoing in a sinful life? No. That old you died. You died to that life of sin. How can you continue to live in it? Now, again, that doesn't mean we don't sin. But we can't go back to living in sin. We can't go back to a life of sin, not permanently, God will not allow it by his Holy Spirit. He will discipline us. He will convict us. He will draw us back to repentance. He's a good father. It's like the way maybe a grown man from, from time to time might act childishly. Wives, hold your laughter. Um, but he can't go back to being a child. That's a totally different thing. He might act childishly from time to time, but he can't go back to life as a child. It's like a, a fish 
that has been transformed into an eagle. He might go and wallow in the water again from time to time. He might dive down, but he could never go back to life under the water. He's no longer built for that. That's not what he is. That's not the kind of animal that he is anymore. That's why 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with God, I'm a Christian, I'm with God, while we walk in darkness, sin. Notice that, walk in, that's Paul's language for just that continual, habitual life. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. A life walking in darkness is simply incompatible to a life with God, a fellowship with God. A life of unrepentant, continuing sin doesn't fit with a life with God. And so if the animal says, I'm a bird, I'm a bird, I'm a bird, and it never flies, it continues to swim comfortably underwater, never coming up for air, never bothered by its position under the water, eventually you have to ask, is it a bird? Is it just a fish that jumped pretty high one time? Comes up to the surface every Sunday. Those who have died with Christ have died to the life of sin. That can be a trying truth. We need to wrestle with that. Paul says, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith if indeed you pass the test. Again, not that we don't sin, but that when we sin, we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. We come back to God in in repentance. So we witness these baptisms Reflect on your death in Christ. If you're saved, this is the new you. Think about that. What what does it mean that the old you is gone? He's dead now. That sin no longer is is the water that you swim in. You're not built for that anymore. You're, you're dead to the guilt of sin. You're dead to the power of sin. And you're dead to that, that old life of sin. You'll never be comfortable. You'll never be satisfied going back there because you've been recreated for something new. So what is that something new? Let's push just a little further. Remember the gospel of grace. Reflect on your death in Christ and then re-engage your new life in Christ. Look at verse four. I'll start from the beginning of the verse here again. We were buried, therefore, with him, by baptism into death in order that, for the purpose that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as that old life is gone, there's a new life given. And not just any life, a resurrected life. A life like the life of Jesus raised from the dead, a newness of life. Romans 6.23, the the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 3.36, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son presently, currently has eternal life 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, he says, look, pay attention. The new has come. It's not just that we can't breathe water anymore. It's that you've been given new wings to fly. There's a new life. And as a person who's getting baptized and comes up out of the water, it's this picture of this resurrection, new life out of the water, out of the grave. They've been washed and cleaned and made new. And just as Jesus came up out of the grave to this glorious new existence, so we as believers are brought from death into new life in Christ. This is what we were saved for, to live this new life. So walk in it. Day after day, continue in this new life that you've been given. Spread your wings. Learn to fly. Colossians 3, 1 to 3 puts it this way. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the, not on the things that are on earth, For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are you engaged in that new life? Do you live as that new creation that you are? Or have you been transformed from a fish to an eagle and been content to just kind of float on the surface of the lake? There are two distinct parts of our salvation on display here, and I think it does us well to just dive into this. There's our justification and our sanctification, and they ought not be confused. Justification is what God does, fully and completely, the moment you trust in Christ. Being justified is God's legal declaration, not guilty. It's his decree that because of the death of Jesus counted to your behalf, you will not face his wrath. His wrath against you is absolutely absolved. It's just as if I never sinned. But inseparably from justification, the next next car in the train coming directly after without fail is the work of sanctification. Where, Where justification is this legal declaration, God says, not guilty. Sanctification is the practical reality, this visible, actual change that begins to happen in our lives day to day, making us more like what God has already declared us to be. And so where justification is binary, it's, it's on or off. There, there is no middle ground. You either are justified or you are not. Sanctification is progressive, It starts small and it comes in waves and it ebbs and flows. You will never be more justified. You will never be more uh, forgiven in the sight of God than the moment you first trust in Christ. 100%. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are removed from you. And yet we ought to see this increasing sanctification day after day and year after year. As we grow in him, as we work to to know God's word, to be conformed by his spirit into the image of Christ. That's all it is, just becoming like Jesus. 
Justification, God does. Sanctification requires our partnership. God works in us by his spirit, and it takes discipline and determination and and effort. It's not easy. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, we ought to train ourselves for godliness. He uses the example of of the gym. Go lift godliness weights. Grow in godliness. Hebrews 12, 14 gives this sobering warning. Strive, reach after, toil for, work for, peace with everyone, and holiness, that's sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. So that old you is dead. The new you has this glorious, new, resurrected life. So here's my charge to those getting baptized this morning and and to all of us as we remember our baptism. Walk in it. Pursue holiness. Spread your wings and fly. Learn to grow more and more like Christ every day. Understanding that that old me is dead. How can he who died to sin continue to walk in it? No, I'm going to walk in the newness of life. I'm going to consider myself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus communing with God in prayer, filling my, my heart and my mind with his word, letting it transform and change the way that I think, the way that I live, relying on his Holy Spirit as I fight to put off the old self and put on the new self in the likeness of God and created in true righteousness and holiness, living every day, every hour more and more consistent with what God has created me to be. So church, as we celebrate these baptisms together, remember the gospel of grace. Reflect on your death in Christ and let's continue to walk in this newness of life. Let me pray. We'll sing together once again and then um, we will hear uh, testimonies and witness the baptisms. Father, what an amazing gospel this is. So overwhelmingly generous that someone might even ask, should should we continue to sin more that grace may abound even more? And yet, God, we cry out with Paul by no means because we've died with Christ to that old sinful life and we've been given a new life, Father. What an amazing gift. Help us to walk in it. God, we rejoice today in that glorious gospel as we witness these baptisms, as we hear of your gracious work in these five lives. Lord, may you use this time to stir us up again, to remind us of our own need for your gospel, to remind us of our death in Christ and our resurrection to newness of life by your grace. God, that you might be honored and glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.